you're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. Today, we conclude our summer series, I Am, with a message from Pastor Tom Wood titled, Not. Let's check it out. Well, good morning, Word of Life. So glad that you guys are able to come and be a part of service this morning. Welcome to everyone, of course, online. So glad that you're able to be a part of everything. Um, so Fall Fest next week, you've heard a lot about it. Um, you're going to hear more about it, I'm sure. But um, in honor of Fall Fest next week, I am going to be wearing a plaid shirt. It is officially that time of year, uh, and I think the plaid shirts is the uniform of dads in the fall. I also wanted to let everyone know that I had a great time this last Wednesday with the youth leaders, and so we've got a great group of people that faithfully serve, love the students, um, the middle school and high school students of the church, and so I had a great time with them this week, and I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm more certain than ever than that age group, the middle school and the high school students, they need faith and they need hope, and so um, I cannot wait for youth ministry to get back into gear uh, starting on Wednesday, so if you're a parent and you have middle school, high school age kids, I really hope you're able to get your students to be a part of everything on Wednesday night, starting this week, six o'clock at the Elizabeth Street building. Um, I'm going to be there, and I really hope I get to see a bunch of students there, because I, like I say, I really believe this generation needs faith and hope like never before. Can I get a big amen? amen. Well, this is uh, the last week of a nine-part series that we've done over the summer, and uh, so if you were here, part of the church this time last year, we did a series, I believe last year was eight weeks, but we took eight weeks and we looked at um, the books of Luke and Acts, and we spent the whole summer kind of going through that, and uh, this summer we've done something similar where we spent nine weeks going through the I am statements that Jesus made in John's gospel, but uh, for what it's worth, I think it's been really great way to do it over the summer months is to do a longer series. We've spread out the speaking uh, with a number of the staff members, so I'm anticipating doing something similar next year. But if you haven't heard um, all of the other eight messages, or if you haven't heard any of them at all, uh, I'm just going to say, I think today's message is the standalone. I think that this works fine just as it is. So if you haven't heard the other messages, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, and for what it's worth, this is possibly the message I've been most excited about as I've been preparing. Um, I really think that there's something really helpful in here, something that's been really blessing to me uh, as I've been getting into this. But the whole idea of the I Am series is in John's Gospel. Uh, John is one of four um, people that wrote uh, a life account of Jesus as he was walking the earth and as he ministered, as he taught, as he died, as he resurrected. There are four people that wrote accounts. We call them the Gospels in the New Testament. John wrote one of those. It's known as John's Gospel. And in John's gospel, there are seven times where Jesus is recorded as saying, I am something. And for Jesus to say, I am something, it means that that word, I am, that, that phrase, I am, is a loaded term. All the way back in Exodus, in chapter 3, God comes to Moses, and as he introduces himself, as he tells Moses about what he's going to do and the role he's going to play in freeing God's people, God introduces himself as, I am who I am. So for Jesus to say, I am, is a loaded term. And he knew what he was doing. And he was teaching people something about himself to say, I am something. So in this series, we've heard about, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then last week, we looked at, I am the vine. And before we get into the final I am for today, I want to give us an important reminder that believers, each and every one of us, anyone that professes to follow Jesus, we are called to be imitators of Christ. 
couple of verses that highlight this. Philippians 2.5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had from 1 Peter. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. 1 John. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, when it comes to imitating Jesus, we cannot imitate his status or his glory, but we are called to imitate his qualities and characteristics so we can show his goodness. The I am's that we've looked at this summer have been insightful for this. Though I, Tom Wood, in my own strength, cannot sustain someone like Jesus can as the bread of life, I can help feed people literally. I can encourage emotionally and spiritually. Jesus is the light of the world, and his followers can reflect the light and the love of God to help people. Though you and I could never be the good shepherd or the gate to the sheep pen in the way Jesus is, we can be protective and we can be on guard against the enemy. Because Jesus has changed my life, I can help others find that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Though the life of the vine is only available through Jesus, the people around us can benefit from the fruit that he is producing in our lives. So though we may not be able to imitate his status or glory, we can and we should endeavor to mirror and replicate his qualities and character. This is an essential part of following Jesus. And followers living like this will inevitably make a massive difference in the lives of people around us. Now, I repeat, but I believe this series has been a blessing. I've had great feedback, especially from the summer small groups that have used the weekend messages as the basis for their groups. And I know that as we look towards the fall and having more life groups coming up, that many groups are using the weekend messages as a basis, and I hope that continues to be helpful. I've enjoyed listening to the rest of the team on Sundays as they were preaching, and for the weeks where I've been preaching on this series, it's been a great blessing to me and a real encouragement. And I've learned a lot as we've dug into this idea of what it is for I am something. And for this final week, we're going to go all the way back to John 8. And there are three times in this passage where Jesus says, I am not. There are three times in John 8 where Jesus will say, I am not something. In a similar way that we can imitate him and look to him as a role model by doing what he's doing, there's something to learn from I am not. What is it that Jesus is rejecting? What is it that Jesus is staying away from? What assumption about him is he correcting? What is it that he is saying, I am not, and what does it mean for us as we look to imitate Jesus? In John 8, you'll see Jesus saying, I am not alone. I am not of this world, and I am not seeking glory for myself. I am not alone. I am not of this world. I am not seeking glory for myself. To imitate Jesus is to look to him for direction, wisdom, ethics, and morality, instead of anywhere else. His concerns and values become our concerns and values. We're prepared to change and stretch so that my words and actions line up with Jesus' example. These I am not statements in John 8 give us something to imitate as we learn from Jesus' teaching. Some of the mindsets, some of the actions that he's rejecting. With Jesus saying, I am not these things, it inspires us as his followers to consider how we can also say that about our own lives. I'm not alone, I am not of this world, I am not seeking glory for myself. If our challenge is to imitate Jesus, then we should want to be in step with God and not alone. We should have the same perspective that we are not of this world. Our values, our priorities, and our ethics are determined by Jesus, not culture or popular opinion. We are not driven by personal gain or glory. 
And the passage we're going to look at in John 8, it took place in the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus has had a number of intense showdowns at this point with the religious leaders, the people of the day that were most influential and were the most respected in the religious atmosphere were the Pharisees. They understood the religion very well, only to find out from Jesus' teaching, they actually misunderstood it. The loudest, the most prominent Jewish group of the day were the Pharisees. And this is a small section of some of the heated disputes that Jesus had with them. So we're in John 8. We'll start in verse 16. This is Jesus talking. I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Now, if I read this and I read, I am not alone, on its own, just reading that by itself, I am not alone, I assume my head would immediately go to, this is someone saying, I'm not lonely because I'm not isolated. But in the broader scope of the conversation, Jesus has been teaching some very bold things at this point. I would even say he's been teaching audacious things, especially this in a few sentences earlier. This is back in uh, verse 12. This is just a few sentences earlier from Jesus saying, I'm not alone. In verse 12, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And his authority is being challenged. And in the heated exchange, the language typically used in a court of law comes up. For us in 21st century America, if someone says something bold or controversial or presumptive, and someone who objects to that, they might say, who made you the judge and jury? If someone says something bold, if someone says something audacious, someone says something controversial, someone that wants to fight back, someone that opposes what's being said, very well might say in our vernacular today, who made you the judge and jury? And we see something very similar here. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're trying to dismiss what Jesus is saying by discounting his authority. Who made you judge and jury? The point they're picking on is you're appearing as your own witness. You are making audacious claims about yourself, and it doesn't hold weight. And they're using the analogy of a courtroom to try and argue with Jesus. And Jesus continues the debate using the same courtroom imagery that they started. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going but you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. The Pharisees, they opened up this analogy of a law court and Jesus brings it to a conclusion. The issue on the table is his authority. Jesus tells them that if they knew who he was, they wouldn't question him. And to prove his point, he says, I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. My authority is validated by the Father. My words carry weight because the Father approves of what I'm saying. My judgment is correct because the Father and I are in agreement. For Jesus to say, I am not alone, it's a comment on his authority. His authority is not self-imposed, but validated by the Father. The confirmation is seen by the many, merry miracles Jesus performed. The opening of blind eyes, turning water into wine, feeding the 5,000, the lame man walking, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the grave. All of this shows the Father's approval of the Son. I am not alone. The Father is in this with me. And if Jesus is not alone, then in our pursuit of imitating him, we should want to say, I am not alone. 
In the true context of what Jesus is teaching, it's not a case of, I don't want to be lonely, though of course that's true. It's just not specifically what Jesus is teaching here, but rather is the authority, the validity, the sum of our lives, the weight that we carry, what we bring to the table, does it begin and end with us? Are we the final word? Does our opinion override everything else? And from this passage, I believe the right response is we are not alone. I can rest in God's authority when I submit to God's authority. We are not alone. I can rest in God's authority when I submit to God's authority. I am not alone. I am deeply immersed in Him. I'm not alone. I'm confident that He's in control. I'm not alone. I'm looking to Him for direction and guidance. I'm not alone. I'm trusting Him to carry me through every season of life. I am not alone. I am waiting for Him to bring meaning out of life's worst moments. I am not alone. I'm expecting Him to bring justice. I am not alone. I am centering my life on God's promises. We share in His authority, not for our purposes, but for His. We join our lives to something much greater and much bigger than just ourselves and our concerns. We relieve the pressure of figuring it all out. We release the need for revenge. We can stop craving the approval and validation of others. And there's an old saying worth repeating. If you kneel before God, you can stand before any man. If you kneel before God, you can stand before any man. If one person claps, we all have to. There is a rest, an even sense of ease, that when you are submitted to God's authority, when we walk in His authority, because we are submitted to His authority, there's a rest that comes. We can rest in His authority. In Australia, in Bible College, the pastor that I interned with, he oversaw the men's ministry. And if I heard him say it once, I must have heard him say it a hundred times. He said, if you're a self-made man, I feel sorry for you. If you're a self-made man, I feel sorry for you because that's a limited life. But if you've built your life on God, if you've given your life to his plans, his purposes, if you've devoted yourself to connecting to his grand scheme of life, God can do infinitely more with your life than you can imagine if we put ourselves first, our priorities first, and we try and do it all in our own authority. The back and forth continues between Jesus and the Pharisees. A few verses later, Jesus gives us another, I am not. In verse 23, he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And Jesus is speaking to people who hate him. He's speaking to people who are ultimately going to manipulate the Romans into crucifying him. And I read this this week from a scholar by the name of D.A. Carson. I want to share this with you. He is from above, i.e. not of this world, but from heaven, sent by his father. They are from below, which does not mean from hell or from the underworld or the like, but of this world, this fallen moral order in conscious rebellion against its creator. This fallen moral order in conscious rebellion against his creator. The contrast is not between a spiritual world and a material world, but between the realm of God himself and the realm of his fallen and rebellious creation. The world which hates Jesus because he testifies what it does is evil. That is the fundamental reason why Jesus' opponents can neither recognize who he is nor understand his teaching. Nothing will suffice to remove such blindness, but being taught by God, being born again, finding the one who is himself the way, 
the truth, and the life. The phrase that Carson uses, the fallen moral order in conscious rebellion against his creator, is what's typical, it's what's expected in the world around us. For Jesus to not be typical and expected, for Jesus to not be that way, it must mean that his morality and ethics are proper and good. It must mean that his relationship with the creator is perfect. Our sense, my sense, your sense of right and wrong is faulty. The world around us is obviously faulty and often destructive. It was just a year or two ago, Megan and I were talking about something that happened in the news, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was one of those news stories that kind of leaves you shocked. It's one of those news stories that's deeply upsetting, and you're just flabbergasted of what you're hearing. And I said to Megan, it's like one of Bob Dylan's lyrics. Now, let me stop right here. If you're new to the church or if you're visiting, I have a weird obsession with Bob Dylan. When I say weird, it's weird. When I say obsession, yeah, it's an obsession. So I was talking to Megan about Bob Dylan, which she hates. <laughs> but in response to this thing happening on the news, I, I really can't remember. I said it's like one of Bob Dylan's lyrics. What's good is bad, what's bad is good. To which Megan looks at me with disdain and disapproval and says, I don't know if that's in a Dylan song, but that's a Bible verse. It's in Isaiah. So I looked it up, and sure enough, she knows what she's talking about. Isaiah 5.20, what sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil. The dark is light and light is dark. The bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. I'm gonna read that again. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil. The dark is light and light is dark. The bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. There's a well-cited passage of Jesus' teaching. It's known as the Sermon of the Mount and it's often described as Jesus introducing the upside-down kingdom. A completely new way of thinking, a completely new way of viewing the world. And if I'm honest, it is highly offensive. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introducing this upside-down kingdom, it is highly offensive, it is highly abrasive because Jesus gives a completely new set of priorities and values. They are completely contrary to what we've come to understand and expect. I'm gonna read a few verses from this. The, the whole passage, if you were to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's over 100 verses. And here's just a few that I think will cut each of us. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard the Lord say the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Now the rest of this passage Jesus manages to offend everyone by bringing a completely new way of conducting ourselves, an alternative philosophy and ethics, a counterintuitive set of guiding principles. I don't believe anyone can honestly read the Sermon on the Mount without feeling uncomfortable because it's so revolutionary. 
The upside down kingdom is contrary to what we expect and experience today. But remember, the one we have promised to imitate, our perfect role model says, I am not of this world. In our imitation of Jesus, in following him, in looking to him as our role model, we should expect that our values and priorities won't match what's normal and typical. That what we care about and how we plan our lives is different from what culture and the mainstream has adopted. We don't lie and cheat to get ahead. We don't believe revenge will help anything. We don't let anger take root in our heart. We don't justify lust and unfaithfulness to our spouse. We don't turn a blind eye to those who need help. We don't show off so everyone knows how generous we are. Because our values, our priorities, our expectations, and our decision-making is not rooted in the culture or the norms of this world. But our values, our priorities, our concerns are rooted in the eternal kingdom of God. We are not of this world. My values, priorities, ethics, and conduct is determined by the eternal kingdom of God, not what's typical or expected in the culture. Another verse I want to read to you. I have a, a Bible reading plan I've been following for a number of years now. And uh, I read this recently in the book of Jeremiah that speaks to this. Jeremiah 15, 19. This is how the Lord responds. If you return to me, I will restore you so you can continue to serve me. If you speak good words rather than worthless ones, you will be my spokesman. And this is the bit that stood out to me. You must influence them. Do not let them influence you. As a follower of Jesus, I strongly believe that there is a calling that each of us has, and that's simply to make a positive difference. You must influence them. Do not let them influence you. Now, something that I believe has always been important, as long as the church has existed for 2,000 years, it's been important. And I think it's only grown in its importance. And I think as I look at the church today and I think about life today that you and I are walking into tomorrow morning and Thursday lunchtime, the life that we walk into, I think the urgency and the importance of God's people having a prophetic edge has only ever increased. Now, we're a spirit-filled Pentecostal church. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, and each believer should embrace those gifts. And when we talk about a prophetic uh, edge, what I'm specifically referring to is in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul lists a number of prophetic gifts, and some of them that he lists include a gift of wisdom, include a gift of knowledge, a gift of prophecy, a gift of discernment. And oftentimes we can think about these gifts as foretelling the future and grand spe uh, speeches like we see from the Old Testament prophets. Now, at the risk of being overly simplistic, being prophetic is seeing God's perspective on something. If I'm going to give the clearest, the simplest definition I can, being prophetic is seeing God's perspective on something. It means having wisdom in a moment of confusion or conflict, a word of knowledge that helps bring truth to a situation, a prophetic word that brings an encouragement that isn't felt in that moment, discernment that something's not quite right. Now, I don't feel a pressure at all for this prophetic edge that I'm talking about to show itself in massive grand speeches but rather in believers having an awareness of what's going on around them, being able to discern what's true and what's a deception, having a word of wisdom at the right time to bring clarity to confusion, having an insight into a difficult situation, bringing an encouragement at just the right time, being slow in making a decision because you just can't get it settled in your spirit. And I truly believe that this prophetic edge rising up in God's people will make a positive difference in the lives of others. It will mean that God's people is able to bring peace and honor to conflict. 
a timely encouragement to people who are hurting, wisdom to help save people from a tumultuous outcome. A prophetic edge shows itself in many ways. It could be just in a conversation and there's just something that you know you need to get off your chest in this moment. Someone keeps coming to your mind and so you reach out to them and find that the perfect timing is when you called. Maybe something completely out of left field keeps coming to mind, so you say it only to find out that it's completely relevant to what that person is struggling with. Prophetic edge could be an encouragement at the right time. We all know that when life has been tough, empty, positive, greeting card happiness isn't what you need. But I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit will prompt people to bring encouragement and hope in its proper timing. It could be sitting in work and something wonderful is being presented or talked about, but you just can't shake an uncomfortable feeling. Having this prophetic edge helps people. It can bring relief, helps people avoid pain. It can promote peace. We are called to influence and make a positive difference. And that is our commitment. We are not of this world. My values, priorities, ethics, and conduct is determined by the eternal kingdom of God, not what's typical or expected in the culture. Jesus goes on a few verses later, John 8:50, I am not seeking glory for myself. Jesus was obedient to the Father, and that resulted in glory, but that was never his driving motive. Following Jesus means accepting that you are not the hero of your own story. Following Jesus means accepting that you are not the author of your own story, but rather Jesus is the hero of your life story. Jesus is the author of your life story. We are not seeking glory for ourselves, but I'm living for something much greater, his glory. We are not seeking glory for ourselves, but I'm living for something much greater, his glory. A friend of mine, he spent some time with some larger churches in London working with them in different ways. And their experience there is that there was a big difference working in London between the believers who became celebrities and celebrities that come to faith. My friend, he had wide experience working with people in different capacities, but he'd seen Christians become celebrities. He had also seen celebrities become Christians, and he noted a massive difference. The believers who became famous suddenly, they now have to respond properly to receiving glory and adoration from people the way that regular people don't. It's not surprising that it's a struggle and it's not easy to keep a level head when you're being idolized by millions of people. When money and success are being thrown at you and praise and glory are being freely given to you, keeping a decent perspective has to be nearly impossible. Consequently, many people who are strong in faith struggle often without upsetting outcomes. But the famous people who become believers had a different experience. The famous people who became believers, they had tasted all the glory and praise and the money and the fame, and they found out it was empty promises. By experiencing all the glory the world has to offer, they've concluded that it's not enough, that there is definitely more. Now, the temptation, of course, remains strong. But my friend's experience led him to conclude that the celebrities who became Christians often end stronger than the Christians who become famous. Because the lure and the glory, the applause is so strong. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul gives a new perspective to this. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Once again, Jesus is the role model. He's our role model. And Paul is teaching the church to have the same humility and mindset that Jesus had. This passage powerfully explores how Jesus did, truly did not seek his own glory. He was not driven by the applause or the approval of anybody, but instead made himself nothing, became a servant, humbled himself, and willingly went to the cross. Paul continues in verse nine. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The result of our humility the result of us being servants, of us having the same mind as Jesus had, will never result in God exalting us. It should never result in people bowing to us or declaring us Lord. But our humility, our servanthood, will bring glory and honor to the Lord God Almighty. It's easy to be concerned about people's approval and applause whether we're driven by international fame and the applause of the crowd, or whether we lose sleep over what our co-workers think of us, it's rooted in seeking our own glory. This verse in Galatians that continues to fascinate me, and it fascinates me because I'm very aware of how far away I am from being able to say this about myself. I'm very aware of how I do not measure up to what Paul says about himself. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now I can't say this. I'm far too selfish. I get frustrated way too easily. And if you ask Megan, there's gonna be a whole long list of other things that disqualify me from saying this. But after years of thinking about this verse, I don't know if I'll ever get to the point of being able to say it. Maybe if I went through prison and beatings and shipwrecks the way that Paul did, maybe I could. But I can tell you this much, and I mean this sincerely, even though I cannot say this with integrity about myself, I can tell you, I want this to be true about me. I want this to be true. In my pursuit of wanting to imitate Jesus, in my life to be all about Him, and wanting to reflect His goodness and show the world His goodness, I cannot stand here with integrity and say, it's no longer Tom Wood that lives, but Christ who lives through me. No, I'm far too messed up for that. But I can tell you, stand before God, I want this to be my story. I want that to be true about me. And I hope that each and every believer wants that to be what they can say about themselves, that it's not me, it's not my priorities, it's not what I care about, it's not all about me, it's not about my glory, it's not about my will being done, it's about Him, it's about His goodness, and it's about showing that to the world. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. We are not seeking glory for ourselves, but I'm living for something much greater, His glory. 
Now, if you've been a part of the church for a long time, you'll know that there's a, a phrase, I would even say like a sentence, a philosophy that really defines my outlook on life. And the simple phrase is this, that if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. I mean, this, this means the world to me. This is something I first wrote down years ago. Right now in my office, there's a, a, a canvas that I had made up that's got this on there as a constant reminder. It drives and determines everything about what I do. If I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only thing that makes sense to follow him, not half-heartedly, not wishy-washy, not kind of, sort of, the only thing that makes sense is to go all in and follow Jesus with absolutely everything. And the I am statements that we've looked at this summer, the seven I am somethings that we've looked at this summer have given us examples of who Jesus says he is. So as this is a defining, driving philosophy of my life that if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. This summer we've looked at who Jesus says he is, that he is the bread of life, that he is the sustenance, he's what keeps us going. He is the light of the world, he guides us. He is the gate that he protects us, he protects us as his sheep. He's the good shepherd. It's his voice that's more important than any other voice in the world. He is the resurrection and the life that our eternal hope is in him and him alone. He is the way, the truth and the life, that he is the way we need to follow, that he completely embodies truth. And he has done everything for us to spend eternity with him and heal our broken relationship with the Father that He is the vine, that our life is found in Him. If we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, then we believe that He's what sustains us through life. He is the one that guides and protects us, the one whose voice should be listened to above all others. If we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, we believe that He is the only one who can promise eternal life, the one who is the complete truth and that the truth will set us free, that our lives should be completely rooted and grounded in Him. If we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, the only correct response, the only logical response, the only response to that, the only thing that makes sense is to follow Him with everything, not holding anything back. Why would we do this half-heartedly? Why would we follow Him lukewarm? Why would we do this a little bit? Why would we add church to a calendar? No, this is an invitation for our entire lives to be centered on the goodness of God. That's the message of Jesus. In living for Him with everything, believers are called to be imitators of Christ, for Jesus to be our example and role model. We are not alone. I can rest in God's authority when I submit to God's authority. We are not of this world. My values, priorities, ethics, and conduct is determined by the eternal kingdom of God, not what's typical or expected in the culture. We are not seeking glory for ourselves, but I'm living for something much greater, His glory. I got a couple of questions for you. If you wanna go ahead, write these down, take your phone out, write them down. Get a pen writing on the neck of the person in front of you, whatever you need to do. A couple of questions for you to think about, pray about this week. First one is this, what matters more, His glory and His authority or your glory and doing it alone? What matters more? It's a tough question, especially when you answer honestly. What matters more, 
His glory, His authority, or your glory and doing it alone? Second question for you. How have your thoughts and actions been determined by the world rather than the kingdom of God? How have your thoughts and actions been determined by the world rather than the kingdom of God? Two tough questions this week. But I hope if you take time and you're honest, I believe there's breakthrough on the other side. The phrase that I shared with you and I've shared with the church many, many times, if you believe that Jesus who says he is, the only logical response, follow him with everything. It came from, I was getting ready to preach at a youth conference in Montana. And this phrase, it was like point two, sub point C. And I wrote this down and it stuck with me. It stuck with me. I mean, honestly, I used to joke and I believe it's still true. If you look at every single sermon I've ever preached, it's basically, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. I just use different Bible verses. But that's basically the message. And I make no apology for it. I think it was 19 years ago. Yeah, it was 19 years ago. I was 19 years old. I made the decision to follow Jesus. I was in a church. The pastor was preaching on the power of mercy. I knew God, I believed in God. For reasons I can never explain to you, I just wanted nothing to do with him. I didn't see the relevance of my faith. I didn't want anything to do with it. Didn't matter that my dad was a pastor and I grew up in church. I just had no connection to faith. In that church that morning, I heard a message on the power of mercy and I knew I needed to get things figured out. My story's a lot longer than that, but that's a short snapshot. My friends, 19 years ago, in a church, hearing the message of mercy, hearing the good news of Jesus, I made that decision, and it is easily the best decision I have ever made. And I stand here today convinced it is the best decision anyone could ever make anywhere, ever. My life's like yours. I've had ups, I've had downs, I've had disappointments, I've had heartache, I've had stress, I've had good times. And in all those ups and downs of life, I have never regretted my decision to follow Jesus. And the only way I would ever want to do it is with everything. If this is true, it is the most important news any of us could ever hear. And the invitation to follow Jesus is to follow Him with everything. So I want to put to you today, you may be here, I don't know your story, I don't know what brought you to church today. You may be here every single week, this may be the first time you've ever come to any church, but you're here. This is the message you're listening to. This is the worship songs we've been singing today. The people you met on the way in are the people you met in. And I believe it was all orchestrated by God to bring you to this point so that you can cross that line from death to life and find life and hope in Jesus. So I want to invite everyone here, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. Let's just give privacy to everyone around you, give discretion so that we can focus on what really matters right now. If you be honest and brave enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God at all. I'm definitely not following Him with everything, but I want to start today. I want to start following God. I want to heal my broken relationship with the Father. I want to live with a sense of peace. I want to live with a sense of confidence. I want to live sure of my eternity. If that's you today, I'd love to pray for you. I give you my word. We're not going to embarrass anybody, but if you could just put your hand up just so I know who we're praying for. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Wonderful. Anyone else here? Thank you. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. Come on. Anyone else? Come on. This is the best decision you could ever make. Come on. Anyone else here today? Amen. Thank you. Come on. Anyone else? Wonderful. I'm so happy for you. Come on. Anyone else? 
Amen. Thank you. Why don't you put your hand up or you can put it down. I've seen that. Wonderful. Anybody else here today? Amen. Amen. I'll pause just for a moment. I don't want to leave anyone out. When we pray together as a church and you want to be included, just put your hand up just so I know who we're praying for. Anybody else here? Yes. Wonderful. I'm so glad we waited for you. Amen. Amen. Oh, wonderful. Oh my goodness, word of life. Come on, we need to celebrate with people making the best decision today. Oh, wonderful. Amen. I mean this with absolute sincerity. This is the best decision you can make. And we're gonna pray a prayer in the moment. And I truly believe you pray a prayer like this and you believe it and you pray it with faith, things start to change. Life starts to look different. So come on, everybody, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Let's celebrate. Wonderful.